Hello, welcome to season two of Don't Call Me Exotic. I'm O-N-E-O. I'm a DJ, radio presenter, and promoter. This is the podcast where I invite people in the creative field to come talk to me about diversity, culture, personal experiences of racism, both in life and in their careers. I'd like to welcome my first guest of the season, an absolute icon in fashion. She's a writer and journalist, and most recently joined as a columnist at ES Magazine, Susie Lau, aka Susie Bubble. Susie! Thank you so much for having me. Oh my god, it's an absolute honor to have you here. First of all, can I just say, like, because I moved to London when I was eighteen, but since I was a teenager, I've wanted to do fashion. Like, I moved to do fashion, so I've known you for like <laughs> because I was incredibly old. No, that's not what I, <laughs> I am. I am. I am. You are the OG fashion blogger, journalist, writer. <laughs> Mother and co-owner of Dot Dot as yeah, well. Bit of bit of F and B, bit of food and beverage just chucked <laughs> in there. Bit of everything, like Jack of all trades, master, master of none. Of no, no. My primary thing is writing, but it's I've it's led me to like a lot of different yeah. things yes. in my lifetime, and now I'm kind of like yeah. Exploring new pastures. Yes. Like a lot of people. Yes. This is the time. This is the time. And it's obviously been a crazy period of time where people are like questioning everything, having existential crises. (laughs) Um, Every week. (laughs) Not that I had an existential crisis, but it definitely was a really strange period. Yeah thinking about identity and then obviously coming Mm. on board the ESCA sisters journey with you and others and it was like this strange time period that I think I took a lot away from and now it's going forward it's really like impacted on like yeah what I do and just what I what I want to do as well yeah Yeah. now at the present I kind of want to go back and Mm. if you can kind of tell me you know a bit about your background but also how you got into fashion so I grew up in London a staunch Londoner (laughs) I don't know much about outside the M25 (laughs) except to go abroad Um, my parents are from Hong Kong I grew up above a Chinese takeaway in Camden so I had a really you know fun upbringing like I went to like a very academic girls school but we were also very kind of like liberal Mm. Um, I went to uni in London so like literally like my whole life is Is ensconced in this city and if you're living in London you just kind of can't be that far removed from like style fashion street style you know dressing it was like dressing myself first and then like getting into like high fashion like designers geeking out like and I was really I guess part of that 1.0 wave of like ye old internet where like you'd look at forums and look at different collections and geek out on collections and like yeah I was like a sort of forum moderator yeah. like wow I was on there style.com at every um after every season and stuff yeah style.com <laughs> the fashion spot all these kind of defunct websites and that's how I got into I guess self 
publishing as well you know I was really like of that generation where like okay I'm just gonna make a website I'm gonna teach myself html I'm just gonna and it's all gonna look a bit crap but who cares (laughs) because it's like so it's just it was just very kind of DIY and it was like that era of myspace customizing a page and making it look all live journal were you ever on live journal yeah and i feel like all these things yeah i did have a live journal it was very emo i don't think we i shared it's like i don't think how I do we delete it, it? like it's still out there yeah i'm a bit scared that it's <laughs> one day it someone might like unearth it but i read when you were describing you know how you grew up that mm. you know growing up in your family's chinese takeaway and you saw all these punks come in and that kind of influenced the punk style and i think your style is so punk and I think like your attitude is really punk um I didn't feel it when I was growing up because it was just so uh, also outside of my family's like remit my family like are not creative at all like they know nothing about like but that makes you punk though cultural like my dad um he he came to like London in the 70s and uh he was working on King's Road and then he'd be talking about like yeah we worked down you know down the road from this crazy like pink store that had sex on it and I'm like oh you mean Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood store that's really cool dad he was like yeah I don't know what that was it was just really strange looking it was crazy and I was just like oh that is really cool you know they just it's just not their world and weirdly all of my sisters I've got three younger sisters and they all ended up in the arts um I I ended up in fashion (laughs) but it's like just so far away from what we grew up with and what the expectations were you know my parents really were very kind of textbook first generation um, Chinese immigrants coming to the UK and being like, okay, you got to do really, really well at yeah. school. You've got to, maybe you could be a lawyer. They were really, really yeah. set on being a law- lawyer, like me yeah. being a lawyer. Like that was what <laughs> they were super fixated on. And I did kind of like <laughs> vaguely look into it and I didn't go to art school. I did history at UCL. So it was oh, very wow. like, it was very open-ended for me. Like I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But in the end, I just sort of slowly... Yeah explored fashion like on the sidelines when I graduated I had this very boring advertising job because I just needed a job to pay the bills and show my parents like look I'm a grown-up now yeah (laughs) but then on the side of that I was doing this blog to kind of you know oh it's like a secret and I don't have to tell anyone about it and my parents don't have to know about it and it's how did they find out I didn't even really tell them. They just actually for ages, even after it was blowing up, they kind of got a bit freaked out when a few times when we would go out for dim sum or something, people would recognize me and say, oh, "Oh, are you Susie? And uh, (laughs) it it was only like maybe like five years down the line where I sat down with them. I was like, okay, this is a blog. This is what I do. This is whatever. And they still didn't really understand how I made money from it, Mm. how I monetized it, you know. And I had a job all the while after I started the blog. I worked at Days for a little bit. So, yeah. like, as long as I had a full time job, they were cool. They were cool with it. It was only when I went freelance and went totally kind of solo yeah. that's when it really freaked them out. And then I really had to like sit them down and be like, listen, okay, so this is how it works. You know, yeah. sometimes I'll work with a brand, sometimes yeah. I'll do this. Every day is different. I'm not going <laughs> into an office. I had to like right, kind of put it in like, yeah. layman's terms. And they were like, oh, okay, all right. Well, you know, you seem to be like paying rent. You yeah, don't that's 
actually you don't, you're not asking us for money that's, so it's okay i'm just like look what i can afford right now and they're yeah. like oh i see yeah, yeah 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 you haven't borrowed money so okay i yeah. think it's working but. i can take them out for dim sum every month oh. and be you know it's a real ritual like i'm really actually super grateful that my fam i grew up with my family i haven't gone a year without seeing my family at least like wow. once or twice a month this actually they're in hong kong right now and i'm getting serious with jaws. <laughs> i'm like oh my god and they've gone for such a long time because yeah. of the quarantine you have to, yeah yeah so yeah i'm feeling really like a baby <laughs> yeah missing my parents we have to talk about ESEA sisters because obviously that's how we met and it's mm. made such an impact on my life like it's genuinely changed my life in such a short period of time and in that short period of time that we've come together I think it was it's less than a year I think it's about 10 months Mm. so it's affected me so much how did you find the sisterhood and how has it affected your life I think it happened at a very I don't know it was a very dark very kind of period of time we were what were we we were like coming out of that sort of third lockdown yeah it was like march so i don't know third or fifth yeah whatever whatever lockdown and it was and then the shootings in atlanta had happened and then on the back of those the kind of spate of violent crimes which were really you know at first it felt like it they were quite far removed because it was in america but Mm -hmm. then because i had a lot of friends in america and in in new york in particular you know, what they were telling me and what they were feeding back to me, like just in our DMs, we started this sort of little DM group. That's how the kind of yeah. Stop Asian Hate hashtag yeah. came about was uh, through people like Philip Lim, mm. Eve Chen, um, Tina Craig, all those kind of people bringing that awareness in the US. And then when the conversation started reverberating, like in the UK through our WhatsApp group, yeah. which then grew into Discord and Signal, we've got yeah. a lot we of multi, multi-platforms. <laughs> yeah. It really felt like there had been this kind of quite hard to articulate strand of conversation, mm. like specific to the UK, I think racism or racial tensions or discrimination tends to happen like kind of more beneath the surface and it's kind of buried a little bit or you bury it yourself Mm. like when you're growing up and you experience these things or or in your workplace like you kind of just go through the motions of trying to assimilate as best as you can within your environment and so then it becomes this sort of buried conversation and then you never talk about it and then when it all started kind of emerging pretty much round about that period mm. just straight after the shootings it was like a sort of almost like this <laughs> verbal... it was like a collective yeah like we were all going through the motions together yeah but it was like tidal wave yeah. of trauma and i yeah. and i really felt that in the esea sisters group yeah that what people were saying everything i was really i don't know it really kind of dawned on me like how many common strands there were like how many common themes there were whether it's about microaggressions at work Mm. whether it's people laughing at your food when you're growing up whether it's you know how you're treated in a dating context which was obviously like a big topic in amongst I mean that's a whole podcast series on its own that that really (laughs) should be a whole podcast series on its own it was really really kind of Almost overwhelming, I think. Yeah. And there were times actually when I read some of the WhatsApp, what people were saying was quite traumatic. It was quite like, wow, it's so interesting how 
we hardly know one another, but we're able to reveal these things about yeah. ourselves to one another. Maybe it's got something to do with being able to speak to strangers, like in the way that you might speak to like a therapist. Yeah. But I think more importantly, it's about finding a group of people that really do understand those specificities yeah. of where people are coming from. Because sometimes, like, you know, some of the things that you said, like, if you t if you said them, like, if you said that you're like, am I going crazy? Yeah, but it's like we've gaslighted ourselves almost to the point where we almost have to tell ourselves it's not. It's not yeah. because they're so subtle. In my experience, I've not really had others to talk about it with. So I just kind of told myself, oh, it's just me. Or like, mm. it's just like, oh, it, they, they meant it as a joke. They're not yeah. racist. So like, I've had to tell myself these things to kind of as survival. And that is like a sort of default tactic to just get through it. Yeah. You know, like if you go through years, whether you're from school age to uni to workplace to like your relationships, you kind of, now that I think about it, you know, you go back and it just feels like it's been maybe like 30 years plus of burying lots of little things and almost forgetting them along the way. But I think now is a good time. And especially for me is, uh, you know, having a child as well. I just wouldn't want her, yeah. Nico, my daughter, she's five now, ever to mm. go through anything. Yeah. Like if I hear like a whiff of, hey, mm. what does she say about human oh journeys? I, you know, I like yeah. you need to know, you need to know, you know, and she's very, when I hear her in the playground, she's very like forthright. She's, she's just a sassy <laughs> creature. And anyway, she, she'll be it. going up to people and be like, hi, I'm Nico. I'm half Chinese, half, you know, and oh. she'll be very kind of upfront about yeah. it. And it's a very different like very generation. Yeah. It's a very wow. self-aware thing. And it's a very different, I guess, a generational thing from when yeah. I was growing up for sure. Yeah, there was also one of the moments that I will probably never forget is that night when you just brought up into the group the Wuhan Girls video mm. that was posted by some very influential people in fashion. Mm. And I remember that night because the group chat just went crazy and we were just all there. I mean, do you want to talk about your yeah, experience I'm of happy. that night? I am happy to talk about it. And also because the parties involved, I think... I know for a fact that also, you know, have been on this journey mm. of like really trying to learn. Yeah. Real, like I'm really learned and I know this from having spoken to him. So it was, um, you know, a very influential DJs. Like he also, see, he saw soundtracks, a lot of big shows in, in fashion, Michel Galbert. He was at a party, you know, an illicit party in Paris where they were holding up these masks with like kind of slanted eyes cut out. They're made by a crazy artist who was hosting the party that evening. And then there was this track in the background called Wuhan Girls, which was actually a song by one of the guys that was there. Oh, really? Yeah, it was oh, like a, bit, oh. a very like kind of, ter well, a, yeah. a very <laughs> terrible song, terrible musician. Yeah. Just, uh, I mean, there's of, a lot to unpack in just is, the description yeah, of the video. There's, there's so there's there was so much going on there yeah. that was that's wrong, and it kind of unfolded very quickly, like that evening when it was brought to my attention, and I kind of just had this very visceral reaction against it. It was really like I felt really actually quite nauseous and mm. really sick, kind of posting it on my stories, like because it's not a gleeful, it's not a 
it's not a triumphant feeling to be outing your peers mm. like that on social media because a I'm not that kind of I'm not normally that kind of person anyway on social media I'm not like cancelling people <laughs> left right and center like you know I like celebrating people yeah. and so you know so it was really kind of yeah kind of nauseating did actually you, did you feel like you had to I just felt really angry like yeah really disappointed and almost like kind of ashamed a little bit a this is my industry and b like also kind of embarrassed like I wonder if these people think that I work with or that I interact with on a day-to-day yeah. basis these people that I call my peers yeah. or colleagues um in the industry is that do they think that's acceptable like do they do like, they like condone it or something like just look at that because there were people that were liking his video as well that are in the industry and just thought nothing of it it's a that people are okay with it yeah and just think that's okay and then b that that person in question was a sort of the main protagonist in that video so you know it was a couple of things and and then all the while when the video was coming in and everyone on ES- on our ESCA sisters chat were just sort of uh, almost corralling mm. one another and like just springing into action and reposting mm. and de- then having like abuse at, you know, them, yeah. at them, directed at them by that <laughs> female artist. Her name was Mary Beltrami. And... Um, it just sort of became this very wild evening of social media takedown. And I have to say, maybe in hindsight, it's not something that I would normally do, like in that kind of rash manner. Like yeah. I'm someone that tends to be like a bit more measured about mm-hmm. things. But I think the fallout from it, it was so big for him. He did get... I mean, completely dragged through. Yeah. And maybe I regret the impact of that on right. on him to some degree because I tend not to believe in trial by social media. But at the same time, I'm also grateful that it was brought to people's attention and that people could look at it, you know, extrapolate from that and think about has something like that ever happened in your life? in other instances like has a joke like that or something like that ever been played out and if other people kind of look at that and think that that resonates with them I think that's a positive thing because you can look at that as an isolated incident but I think the main thing about it is that you know it's it's racial stereotyping it's disregard for well conflating the virus with a whole nation of people, you know, with the Wuhan girls. Yeah. And then it's also this idea of almost laughing at a whole, like a whole ethnicity. Yeah, no, it was so offensive on so many levels. Yeah. And also we were all in lockdown. So yeah, it was exactly. Just, in lockdown. It was like disrespectful this... in so many <laughs> Yeah, and it, it had this like sort of classist undertone yeah. as well, where it was like the upper echelons yeah, it of a it society yeah. so far removed from reality. So having spoken to uh, Michelle and Ryan, his partner, who is actually uh, his main collaborator, we had some very, actually did have some, we had A, a conversation on Zoom that was like kind of about mediating the issues. Mm-hmm. It was 
we never we never actually published it actually it was it was a very complicated conversation to edit i ha i still have the video and when i look back at it i think it was maybe recorded a bit too soon after right. it i think it was like a month after yeah. it happened and the feelings were still very kind of he was very sorry but then there was defensiveness right. in there and then subsequently when we had another conversation he does regret being there participating so he was a participant he didn't all you know he didn't wasn't organizing the yeah. party he didn't make those masks he didn't make that song he thought that song was hideous he didn't know it was like coming on oh god it's like you go through this process of one i guess wanting to like well believe in the best of somebody rather than going all out finger pointing and being like yeah but you did you know mm. where do you draw the line and how do you like move forward and how well how do we go through this process of realizing that racism is everywhere and it's you know we we have to confront it mm. all the time you know and it's not about like racist equals bad person it's some you know how do we unpick bias in ourselves yeah and I have it, I'm sure we all have it. And yeah. we have to kind of, I guess, realize that and like go, like keep going through these like processes and, and really learn when it's pointed out to you, when that bias is like so apparent. Yeah. So that conversation happened quite soon after. Did you say that you had a conversation recently as well? Yeah, I have seen him obviously at shows yeah. and in person and. I didn't mean to have the conversation with him, but it was like we were just happened to be at a studio in, in Milan. And I don't want to digress, you know, exactly what was said mm. because it was a private conversation. It's not it wasn't like I really did get the sense that they were so thoroughly shaken by it that it really made them like question a lot of things. And then they did divulge, you know, certain things about that night, which was Yes, it was drug fueled. It was alcohol fueled. Not that they are excuses, not to use them as excuses, but they did fill in some context to that evening. That I don't think it's not like a defense strategy as such, but it, you know, it there is like nuance to mm. it, you know, and there's nuance to every situation. Mm. Like in these situations, you really always, always have to like look at context yeah. and. Otherwise, it just becomes, like I said, this kind of finger pointing exercise and nothing is learned. And, you know, it just becomes a you're in the sin bin, you're cancelled. Mm. Bye bye. And, you know, he's working. He obviously has is carried on working in shows. And my intention wasn't ever to also yeah. get him like cancelled, cancelled, <laughs> you know, because he's. Yeah. He's still brilliant at what he does. Yeah. I think because so much when receiving racism, it's like all we want to be seen as is human. So mm -hmm. I guess in these circumstances, as much as we're in pain and we're angry, we need to also remember that these people are human also and to have that space and then come back to it with context. I think that is important and it's hard, but... I think it's about having empathy on for both sides, yeah. you know, like I... Not that I'm saying that all is forgiven and I think you are now not without bias. Mm. That may never be the case. But at the very least, he now is cognizant yeah. and they are cognizant of it going forward. I have to also do the same thing as well. You know, I don't, I just wouldn't want to be like, I guess, in that position of like, I'm the good guy and you're the bad guy. Mm. You know, it's not about good guys and bad guys. Yeah. It's like 
about everyone just trying to understand mm. each other. Yeah. But yeah, it was like a real kind of, uh, uh, yeah, a kind of quite quite crazy process of like <laughs> really confronting a lot of things. And because subsequently I did write about it a bit more in a sort of fashion context, mm-hmm. confronting a lot of things in my industry that have always been quite dreadful yeah. and quite horrible and not just with regards to you know racial diversity there's so i mean where do we begin <laughs> how do i defend my industry <laughs> when you had posted about um what had happened at the party mm. um you had written and this really resonated with me where you had said and this was in regards to the party speaking on if we had been invited to the party as asians will we be standing there watching uncomfortably feeling like we were beholden to them grateful to have been invited to the party so best just to suck it up right that's a hard no and that's precisely why this hurt because behind closed doors meetings dms emails that fly around you don't really know what people are saying you don't know what people are really thinking they're smiling they're saying they love what you do but do they see you do they really see you or am i along with many other asians who work in this industry just another slant-eyed blank face interchangeable disposable insignificant like those masks oh my fucking god because oh my god oh my god no honestly though because i like we all think these things don't we like and it applies to obviously other or let's say like fields where well let's say actually all fields we're in the minority (laughs) unless we're talking about chinese Uh, restaurants (laughs) but for the most part like creative fields where it's hard to get your foot in the door like to begin with for anyone, yeah, you know, whether it's like through your social economic status or because of your lack of connections, yeah. or but in our culture, work just generally speaking, and I, I guess I speak from like just what my parents would used to say was like they would say things like, "Oh, so you're at a magazine? Oh, you should offer to do like all the you know really menial things. Like you should do twice or three times as much because you know other people will." know somebody there and you're going to be the lowest of their priorities oh my god and, and so it is like instilled in us to just be grateful to hold space or to like have any kind of presence and i've had these conversations with a lot of people like a lot of asians that work on design teams mm-hmm. for instance like you know they so like if you at the fashion houses you've got a creative director and then you've got a design team and it's kind of like lots made up of lots of rungs and in that pecking order I've spoken to a lot that always felt like that they couldn't say they couldn't assert their authority or assert their opinion I've definitely had situations of that in work in magazines where I was just like okay I'm so grateful to be here so I'm just gonna shut up and sway in the background you know like like, if they don't notice me, then they won't kick me out. Yeah, that kind of um, unease of always being like, I'm so grateful, I'm yeah. so grateful. Thank you, thank you, thank yeah. you for having me. And like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, like, you know, it's just like sort of like apologetic slash grateful kind of <laughs> stance that, that, that basically oh. define that basically define my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to fight against that I mean, now. I, I, I still have that. Like sometimes in some spaces, like in some parties, I've, you know, often looked around and been like, I do not belong here. No. I need to get out. Yeah, you know, like just a real like kind of 
a two second, five second moment, and then you like hold yourself, and then you're like, no, it's I am I. Maybe it's this like sort of continual, and it's a thread that's come up on Discord a lot. Imposter syndrome. Yes, I was gonna say. I don't know how you shake it off. Like I'm still learning. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't believe you, you get it. I mean, I know whenever anyone talks about imposter syndrome, like we all get it. Mm. But like, how do we stop? Like, how do we snap out of this? Yeah, I, I just, um, I don't know. I, I think it's like a real kind of learned behavior, and I'm definitely a product of my upbringing and you know what I when I was saying like my parents were like just always constantly imposing me like you need to work three times as hard yeah I don't know it's it's hard and, and it's nothing against them you know they are also a product of their upbringing which is that they came from absolutely nothing yeah. they never went to college and yeah. you know they worked really hard to give us a decent life here in in the UK and so I hope I don't pass that on, I guess. Mm. You can only, like, unlearn that and yeah. then, like, hope that, I don't know, Nico grows up and she isn't going, like, sorry, sorry, sorry. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> thank, thank you so much. But, like, even the fact that she's going up to people and being, like, so assertive of her identity, that's amazing at the age of five. I mean, she's quite sassy. She's just I a sassy it. character <laughs> in her own right. And, like honestly don't really know where she gets it from because like i'm like when i was five i literally didn't say a thing yeah but i mean we can't compare those two you you at five years old and her at five years yeah. old it's a different time and like it's a different time she's yeah. a different person i'm glad that she's also maybe like a product of her upbringing and yeah. her environment what well, is you i mean take she... some credit. thank you thank you <laughs> thank you thank you thank you yes thank you thank you no she's bullshy and uh, but sometimes it's kind of not scares me but it freaks me out a bit because yeah. it's like whoa you're gonna be really like sassy yeah. when you grow up and that's gonna be like a lot for people to deal with i'm glad i'm you're gonna be living a very probably a very different work life from yeah. what i had yeah you wrote an article for Vogue UK last year mm. ab about having a conversation with Philip Lim mm. about the bamboo ceiling. Mm. So what was that conversation like? So it's this thing, this theory, and it applies to other lots of fields as well, where you, it's this idea that as ESEA or Asian, you are good enough to be celebrated to a certain extent but then let's say in a situation of career advancement, like what I was saying about, you know, like in a design team structure or a magazine structure or any kind of hierarchical structure, you're okay for certain positions, but not to advance and not to like go beyond. Or like in a, if you're a fashion designer, like you're celebrated, but then, you know, forgotten about seasons, few seasons down the line or whatever. It's this idea of, that we occupy like a space that where we're present, but maybe not necessarily like heard or given like full authority or full kind of, um, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever experienced it in, in music. You're there as a presence, but then are you really given like full creative control over something? Yeah, it's just this idea that, you know, there is a certain kind of, ceiling that's imposed but I I don't know if it it's not something that I'm like saying that hard and fast happens everywhere and it's just anecdotally speaking and maybe more pertaining to fashion that there is this kind of uh, limit 
of success. Yeah. Because most everything, well, in fashion anyway, is still controlled largely by white people, men, male CEOs of a certain kind of economic strata. So if that directive is coming from top down, then these ceilings are like maybe being placed subconsciously. And we don't even know. Well, I've kind of been lucky in so much that I've been able to kind of just control my career (laughs) because it's like haphazard and it just goes in whatever direction. And, you know, I'm not running like a multi-level company. You know, I I run my own business, but it's like, you know, it's largely just me like managing myself, managing my work, managing my collaborations, managing, you know, my writing work. And I've been able to kind of just sort of float around. I have to say that, I wouldn't love to go back into a a magazine or a publication hierarchy just because I do dread the politics of it. The politics of it and that feeling of uneasiness that you get in any kind of group dynamic. And it's not necessarily just to do with like my cultural identity, but it's, you know, it's to do with like a lot of things, you know, how much experience you are. And it's this sort of dog eat dog kind of mentality that. I'm not I'm not sure I'm that cut out for to be honest. Yeah. There was an experience that you wrote about that actually made me lose my shit. <laughs> um you said I've lost count of the number of times I've gone into an office or a luxury fashion house to interview a designer mm. and been asked if I'm looking for the flagship store or gone to Bond Street store to attend a press day only to be told we're closed this event is for press only. Yeah. I mean I almost take those experiences to be just like a sort of eye rolling, okay, because like over the years, and I've I've been going to fashion shows for like the best part, like 15 years or whatever, in the shows is divided up by like your regions, British press, US press, Asian press, Mm. in the British press block, I think I've been the only Asian there for like, however many, I don't know, however many years, it's been a, it's been a long time and and even and back then there were like very few black people as well. Yeah. Like now, obviously, the kind of ethnic cultural makeup of that British press block has expanded a little bit, mm. but it's still like so. It's just when you go to these spaces that have just oftentimes like a fashion journalist, a British fashion journalist is always mostly white, yeah. maybe slightly older, someone that just doesn't really look like me, basically. Yeah. So I almost take it like a okay. <laughs> I need to like prove my credentials and then suddenly I find myself turning up my British accent yeah. like you know going very very posh and then I go I go really like well excuse me I have I definitely had a meeting scheduled with yeah so you know I'm here to interview Julian Dustin now from Paco yeah. about, you know like whatever who and I go but to my shame that's also like me I guess trying to assimilate or trying to prove. fit into and prove to them that I am worthy to be there it's so like yeah it's so unnecessary like I wish I didn't have to do that yeah and then yeah when suddenly when I assert myself in that way suddenly they're like oh okay yeah it's only because when I turned up or whatever I didn't state with full intent you know yeah or they just look at me and then they instantly say it yeah that that I think that's insane though I think that is the worst that's also like similar to the thing that used to happen to me at the Eurostar at Paris where (laughs) 
like you're holding your so it's, it's the, the old eu passports used to be burgundy r.i.p burgundy passports i still have mine mine's got three more years i'm not gonna <laughs> turn blue just yet but anyway yeah they see your burgundy passport still and then they just look at you and be like overseas passports the other queue please and i'm like fuck off yeah I, it literally used to happen like so many times I actually wrote a letter of complaint to Eurostar. Oh my god, good! Yeah, it was so annoying. It was so frustrating because it's always like at the end of, you know, like a long week in Paris and I'm just like, I just want to go home and feel like I'm going home. So don't tell me which queue I belong in. I know which queue I'm going in. I've been going to this station for like, you know, 20 years. Just things like that. It's like being told you're not in the right lane or in the right space. It's just never a good feeling and... Yeah, I wish those assumptions weren't made, but um, sadly, it still happens. Like, yeah. and largely, like, not so much in the UK, more definitely in in the con- on the continent, <laughs> in in Milan and Paris. It, yeah. it just ha- it's just. I mean, there is a very different level of how they view Asian people, Asian people, minorities in general. Yeah. Like, they have very, very different kind of racial dynamics yeah. that you have to contend with when you go there on a regular basis for work oh God, what about the states i have to say like in that way new york or if you look at american press they are definitely probably way ahead in mm. in terms of actively and they are definitely now more than ever mm. you know you know especially in light of the last two years have diversity as an active agenda yeah and they do confront it head on. And maybe sometimes it can feel a bit on the nose and a bit sort of performative yeah. because like, you know, that, I think that's also just that American, American thing, yeah. thing in general, you know, where they need like a big gesture, right? Yeah. And it's like very <laughs> bullshit. I think at the, you know, at the very least it's on their agenda and yeah. they're like taking it seriously yeah. and they really like consider these things. And it's just a very different climate out there, which is great, you know. And that's, you can see it being reflected in like magazine mastheads or like designers that are coming through in New York and LA and stuff. So yeah, like it's a really different working environment and here it's a different, it's it's also on the agenda, but in a sort of still a slightly kind of, we like having the conversations about it, but then not really maybe doing much about yeah. it. That's what I feel like here as well. Yeah, it's like, we like the conversation. <laughs> There's no follow through. <laughs> yeah, no follow through. I mean, much like, I mean, if you look at like the, just the makeup of our government as well, it's oh, like I they can. love a, they love a kind of report or, a, <laughs> or investigation <laughs> or something like that, statistical thing. Yeah, yeah. A thing that like, you know, delves into like how it happened, but not really fixing like or solving the problem at yeah. hand. So that's a different issue altogether. I do want to speak to you about your new position. Yeah. Yay! Well, it's not a, it's not a new position as such, but uh, it, I am really happy about it because it is like something very different for me. I've just joined uh, Yes Magazine, Yay! which is the thing that you get for free on the Evening Standard every Thursday, Friday. Ben Cobb, my friend, has come on board as editor in chief. He used to be another man, and um, I'm going to be writing the front page column. And wow! it's not going to be. It's actually not going to be about fashion. It's going to be sort of about life and observations of London and yeah so I'm tapping into something a very different writing brain 
and it's really important also for me to I think also explore a little bit of you know those things that we talked about in there or not not hammer it home yeah. like in this like really kind of didactic way and be like it's all about no I think it's about just being that present having yeah. that cultural presence yeah your in perspective a, in a magazine that has often when I was growing up I used to look at ES and you'd look at the sort of uh, photograph party pages yeah. and you'd just be like yeah this is not my world at all like I don't know what these parties are all about I don't know what these who these people are these it girls and these aristocrats yeah and bougie people yeah so I think he's definitely come in to try and shake things up a bit the the redesign of it looks really sick it looks really quite different from what it was yeah so yeah I'm really really excited to like kind of write about or tap into something that is very different from just writing about like fashion yeah. and designers yeah. and yeah I'm really I'm really front really... page you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's very cool it's very no, but to me that's so exciting because I can relate to your perspective you know of life and just our cultures and stuff so like that is so amazing to have a voice that I know is a voice I can relate to on something like that and so it's it's a massive thing in your career but it's also a big win for all of us really I think you know for me it's like it's just adding to that and then especially in the UK in the media landscape ESCA representation is still pretty low like if you go through the BBC like you'll go through hours yeah not seeing one ESCA person like having Jason Wong who's like an actor on like Silent Witness for me was like a really exciting moment because like Silent Witness is this big BBC program and he's this a British born Chinese actor on there everything like that feels to me like you know it's a step forward it's like it's about making the landscape as reflective of our city our country and ES is a London magazine and London is a very very diverse place and not that I'm here to like represent all of that but yeah I also do want to speak to you know the fact that I live in Seven Sisters Mm. like it's a very like diverse neighborhood and of varying economic stratas you know and it's about sort of I guess just speaking to those experiences as well Soon ES will be ESEA. Yeah, yes. <laughs> imagine. Well, imagine. Um, God, can you imagine a whole... Ma- oh, my God, that would be so sick, though, a whole masthead. <laughs> ESEA. Amazing people. What do you have coming up for 2022? Just doing a heck of a lot more writing. Yeah. Just be- beavering away and hopefully... Getting out again, yeah. Enjoy. <laughs> well, we I we sort of enjoyed it a bit, but tentatively mm. in twenty twenty one. I think twenty twenty two is a year of unplanned spontaneity. Hopefully. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's Thank been you. an absolute honor. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and could you just drop your socials so people can find you? Uh, I'm on at Susie Bubble. Um, it's just just Instagram, nothing else. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Sorry. 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 Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to Susie. I'll be back next week, so make sure you subscribe, follow, and rate this show to keep posted on new episodes. You can also get in touch with me at Don't Call Me Exotic Pod and at Oneo on Instagram. You can also send me an email at Don't Call Me Exotic Pod at gmail.com. Oh, and make sure you don't call people exotic. <laughs> <laughs>
Bye.